Okay, good morning, everybody. Now, um, I don't know if, you, if you're anything like me. I'm a big fan of children's films. I'm not ashamed to say it. I particularly like a lot of the animated films, a lot of the Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks kind of stuff. And But what I'm finding uh, now as an adult, I can go back, I can, can watch these films that I watched when I was younger, and I realise I've just missed... I've missed so much from from the first time I watched it. So they're actually, there's a, some of these films are really quite deep. Uh, there's some serious points that they make, and as a youngster, it just kind of went, kind of just flew past me without me even realising. So uh, now, as I'm watching them as an adult, uh, so I realise there's this depth to the film that I wasn't that went completely unnoticed before. We watched Inside Out the other day. I don't know if you've seen Inside Out. That is a really deep film. Uh, with some fairly serious points that it makes, but it is done so amazingly well. And I've realised that watching it as an adult, I've taken, I think I've appreciated that film a lot more than I would have. But say, some of these films are really deep. And one of my favourite films, one of my favourite animated films, is uh, Rango. Don't know if anyone's seen Rango. My dad, he's a big fan as well. And, and Rango is a, is a story about a chameleon. He fancies himself as a bit of an actor. He puts on these different characters and takes on these different roles. And he finds himself... Uh, in a situation where he's out in the wilderness and he's kind of going, it's almost like he's going on this journey of self-discovery, working out who he really is. And throughout the film, he asks this question. It seems like quite a simple question, but I think it's actually a very deep question. And he says, who am I? And he asks this at various points throughout the film. He seems to be in a period of uncertainty and confusion in which his sense of identity has become insecure. He's not too sure who he is, and he's trying to work it out. And really, that's, could be de- he could be defined as having an identity crisis. That's what we mean, an identity crisis, where someone's sense of identity has become insecure. Now, uh, R.C. Sproul, some of you might be aware of, he's a, a theologian, a pastor, and, a, and an author. And I was on his website the other day, and he made what I thought to be quite an interesting observation. He says that the world is in the middle of an identity crisis. He says, the world is in the middle of an identity crisis in the sense that it doesn't know the real identity of Jesus. The world doesn't know the real identity of Jesus. And I think actually this is true. Uh, and it, it's been true for, since when Jesus w- was on the earth. In Matthew 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he asked the question. He says, who do people say I am? And they answered him. They said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some that you're Jeremiah. And, um, and others say that you're one of, one of the other prophets. So lots of different answers that people gave. And I think as well, actually, if we were to ask the question today to people in our society and people in our world, you would find a really wide and varied response to that question of who is Jesus. Some would say he's a prophet. Some would say he was a good teacher or a good moral man. Others still would say he, actually he never even existed. He's just like a myth or a legend in that sense. As I say, if, I think there is an uncertainty and confusion, really, about who Jesus is. There's a lot of different responses that you would find if you were to ask that question. Now, for me, if you wanted to, to find out who I was and really get to know who I am, I think the best person to ask would be me. As long as I was being honest and as long as I was being completely truthful, you would find out most about me by asking me and listening to the things that I would say about myself. And in the same way, the best way to know who Jesus is is to look at the things that he said about himself, about the revelations he made about himself. I think that gives us the, the truest and fullest 
picture of his identity. We're starting a new series today. We're going to be doing that. We're going to be looking at these things that Jesus said about himself, these statements he made about himself. And there are, we're going to be spending some time in the book of John. And in John, Jesus makes these seven statements about himself. And each of these statements begins with these, the same two words, which are I am. And these have become known as the I am statements of Jesus. So he says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good Shepherd, And in each of them, he's revealing his identity. He's revealing something of his character, of his nature, and of his purpose as well. Now, in John, the book of John, as I say, these seven statements come up in John. There's an interesting couple of verses in John chapter 21, which where actually the author's, he's kind of outlining the point in him writing the book. He says, this is the purpose of the book. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that aren't written in the book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as Jesus reveals to us who he is, it's with, it's with a very clear purpose. It's so that we might believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that we may have life by believing in his name. So as we're looking in these statements, it's that revelation of who Jesus is. That he wants to make known to us for the point that we would believe in him and that we would find life in him. That we would know him as he truly is. Eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ whom he sent. It's about that relationship with him. And we've called this series, it's actually a question, the title of the series. And that question is, do you know him? Do you know him? Because actually what we want to do... Uh, through this series is to give us time just to ponder on Jesus, to spend time reflecting on him, to gain a full and deep understanding of who he is. But also we've been speaking over the last few months about, uh, sorry, over the last few weeks about how we we really feel that God is moving us into this opportunity to be uh, sharing the gospel, to be making him known. And if that's the case, then it's my hope that in this series that this series will also equip us to be able to reveal the truth of who Jesus is to others in the way that he's revealed it to us through his word. So to, to equip us and to train us and to give us that understanding so that when we have these opportunities to share the gospel, we're revealing to them who Jesus really is. Uh, and so, so that's what I hope um, this series will allow us to do. We're going to be looking at the first I Am statement this morning, which is in John chapter 6. So if you'd like to find your way there, if you've got your Bible, uh, I've asked Steph if she can... Come and read the passage to us today. It's a fairly long uh, passage of scripture, so I thought it'd be nice to have a different voice rather than my own for that. So while you're finding your way there, I'm just going to set it in context. Um, you, you can come up. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to set the context. So the day before, uh, the, the, the passage that we're going to read, the day before, Jesus is in the region of Galilee and he's just fed... 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And actually, it was more than 5,000. It was 5,000 men, so that's not counting the women and children that were there. Some people reckon it could have been up to about 20,000 people that had gathered to meet him. And he fed them with five loaves and two fishes. And not only that, he managed to gather together 12 baskets of all of the food that was left over. It was this absolute miracle that he had performed in feeding this group and the people that have been witness to the miracle, the people that have been involved in it, uh, they decided they were going to take it upon themselves to make Jesus king. Even if he didn't want to be their king, it says that they were going to uh, make him their king 
by force. They wanted someone who could lead an uprising against the Roman authorities, kind of a figurehead for their group that would make just this real political impact uh, and, and this statement on their behalf. And Jesus knows what they're up to, and he leaves before they have this opportunity. So that's the context in which we're looking in. This amazing miracle has just taken place. The people uh, want to make Jesus their king. They're intent on following him and being around him. Uh, and that's where we're going to pick up now from verse 22. Sorry. <laughs> on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples for that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labour for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raised it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as they were taught at Capernaum. Thank you. Okay, so we've got this crowd, this crowd from the day before. And this, they seem like a bit of a persistent bunch, uh, to the extent that they head over the Sea of Galilee, they get in their boats, they cross over to Capernaum and they track Jesus down and they find him teaching and he's teaching in the synagogues. They were desperate to be with Jesus. They were absolutely desperate to be with him. They'd experienced something the day before that made them want to be around him. That made them want to follow him. When they finally catch up to Jesus, though, the first thing he says, he cuts right to the motivation of their heart. He can see exactly what it is that they want with him. He can see exactly what it is that they are after. See, they were looking for him not because of the miraculous sign that they had seen, not because it pointed to something of, of Jesus and his, his godliness. They were looking for him because he had met a physical need for them. To put it in another way, they had a belly full of bread that Jesus had provided, that he'd satisfied their hunger in their sense. And that was the reason that they were tracking him down. You see, to this crowd, Jesus, he was someone that they could benefit from it could benefit from in a material sense. They could see that they could have their physical needs met in him. They wanted to make him their king, but they wanted to accept Jesus uh, as sort of a political Christ, a political saviour. Like I say, someone that, that could be their representative, someone that could, could look after them and, and meet their needs and kind of fight on their behalf and stand on their behalf. They'd completely missed the point of what Jesus was doing through, through the feeding of the 5,000 the day before. You see, the miraculous signs, they were to point to Jesus' divine nature. The truth that he is God. And it was absolutely missed by this group. They were after him because they wanted to, to get what they could out of him, to have their physical needs met. Now, when I met uh, with our youth growth group the other day, we were looking at a story, actually, a couple of chapters before this in John, where Jesus is, uh, he meets a Samaritan woman by the well. And as you read through the story, you, you just see just how skilled Jesus is in teaching. He meets her where she's at. He understands what her understanding is. And he asks questions, just to kind of open things up and, and to, to lead the discussion in such a way that he can almost get, get her thinking in the right way where he can then reveal something of himself to her, to kind of prepare her to get to that point. It really is like an absolute masterclass of, of teaching. Uh, and he does something similar here. As well, you see, to this crowd that have followed him, Jesus he poses questions and he steers their thinking before he makes this bold statement that, that we're going to come to in a minute this bold I am statement, this revelation about who he is. So he kind of leads them up to this point. He says, Actually, he says, Why is it that you work for food that, that's going to perish, that's going to spoil? As, as a father of a one year old, uh, you find random grapes and toast in the most amazing places that you've never thought possible. It is true, food does not last very long. It spoils and it perishes. So Jesus is saying, actually, why are you giving yourself to work 
for something that's not going to last. Instead of that, there's something actually that's available to you. Why instead don't you work for food that will last forever? Doesn't that sound amazing? Food that will last forever, that will not spoil. And then he says, and this food is something that the Son of Man will give to you. He's taken a physical object of bread and food and he's turned it to give it a spiritual truth. Something that's physical, he's turned it to give it a spiritual truth. And he's got them interested. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in that? And they say, what do we have to do? What does this work look like? What do we have to do in order to receive this food that will never spoil, this food that will last forever? Jesus looks at them and he says this, this is the work that you have to do, that you believe in him who who he sent. It's about belief. This food is not earned, but it's received as a gift. Doesn't this sound amazing? Imagine that you were there in the crowd. Wouldn't that have sounded incredible? To receive this food that you don't have to do anything for. I'm not quite sure they were still quite on the same wavelength of Jesus, but he's getting them along with him on this train of thought. To me, the crowd, they kind of seem a bit sceptical, and they demand a sign from Jesus. Okay, you're saying that this is available, you're saying that we can receive this food that will last forever. You've got to do something in order to prove to us that we can trust in what you're saying. Bearing in mind, maybe not all, but some of this group, just one day before, had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes, and they're saying, actually, we need you to prove yourself again. Seems a bit funny to me that they'd already seen this, but they're like, okay, you say this, we need something from you to show why we should trust you. And then they speak of how their ancestors, when they were walking about in the desert, uh, they, in the wilderness, they had manna, they had bread provided for them, miraculously provided for them. And again, Jesus takes them further in their thought process. He says, actually, it wasn't Moses that provided the manna. It wasn't Moses, the leader of the people, who provided this bread. But it was God. It was Father God who had done it. And, this, and Father God will give the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus is talking about this true bread, something or rather someone who will nourish people but in a, in a spiritual sense and for eternity. There's a spiritual nourishing that Jesus is talking about now. And then the people are there with him and they say, Sir, give us this bread always. It's, it's so appealing to the people. They want it. They say, give us this bread always. And now it's time for Jesus to hit them with this I am statement. The first of the statements that we're looking at this series. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never go thirsty. So the statement, I am the bread of life. Now, for a number of, of the people there, uh, he was preaching in the synagogue, so it would have been, been Jewish people gathered together. For them, there would have been echoes of a passage in the book of Exodus uh, where Moses is talking with God. And Moses says to God, he says, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And that's God's name that he establishes with his people. It's God's name that he says is going to be his name forever. I am who I am. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the people who were listening in the synagogue, they would have been aware of this scripture uh, in Exodus. You see, Jesus, he's making a statement about his divinity. He's making a statement about the, the truth that he is God. 
In the same way that God, said, God himself said, I am who I am. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He's establishing his identity as God himself. This does not go down well with people. And actually, this further down the line is the reason why he is crucified. Because people didn't like the things that he claimed about himself. And this is true of all, all seven of the I am statements we're going to be looking at over this series. Each time, Jesus is establishing his identity as God himself, but revealing a kind of a different aspect of his character and a different aspect of his nature through them. Bruce Milne, he wrote a commentary on, on the book of John. And on this, this statement about Jesus being the bread of life, he says that the saying enshrines the essence of Jesus' message. He is the answer to the needs of the human heart. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the answer to the needs of the human heart. See, the bread of life implies the fundamental, elemental role that Jesus claims to fulfill in relation to the, to the yearning of the human spirit. Jesus claims that he will fulfill the yearning of the human spirit. Bread, to me, seems like quite a fashionable thing at the minute. Lots of people make their own bread. Uh, I get confused sometimes when I go in the supermarket because there's so many different types of bread to choose from. Lots of people have their own bread makers. Uh, I think Great British Bake Off has probably done something in that. And just realised for someone who claims not to like the programme, I've talked about it a lot in my preaches. Uh, I stand by it though, I'm not a fan. Uh, but bread seems like a bit of a, bit of a, a fashionable thing at the minute. But really, bread's not a luxury item. For thousands of years, since agriculture... Uh, has really allowed it. Bread's been a staple food source, uh, as I say, for, for millennia. It's, it, bread is it's a symbol of nourishment and of life. And for millions of people around the, around the world today, bread is the primary source of nourishment that they have. It's a universally basic food. And so when Jesus claims that he is the bread of life, he's claiming that he fulfills the role of fulfillment and satisfaction for everyone. It's not just for the one or two. It's not like some luxury item that's afforded to a few. It's a, it's a basic need that he is going to fulfill for everyone, for every heart, for every heart to be satisfied. He is bread come down from heaven to give life to the world. He's the saviour of the world. Actually, that's what comes out in the, in the story of Jesus and the, in the Samaritan woman. There's a declaration towards the end that Jesus is the saviour of the world. There's a, a guy named Gough Hope. He's an elder at King's Church in Norwich. And in, in terms of, when he's talking about God being the bread come down from heaven to give life to the world, he says this, I think it's wonderful. He says that Jesus is God come close. That's who Jesus is. He's God come close. So I've already uh, shared with you that I'm a fan of animated children's films. I'm not ashamed of that. Uh, I'm also a big fan of the comic strip Garfield. I don't know if many of you have really read Garfield, but Garfield, he's this lazy cat, and his favourite food is lasagna. He absolutely loves lasagna, so I've got that in common with him. And then this one particular comic strip I remember, uh, where he has this tray of lasagna, and he eats it, and he gets to the end, and then it fills up again, just, just fills up again. And he's like, he's like, it's amazing, he's like, I finally found it, I found this, the, the never-ending tray of lasagna, and then he wakes up. And this completely ruined uh, just this joy that he had. But it, makes it, it actually helps make a serious point, is that food provides temporary satisfaction. It fulfills our need for a while. We'll eat a meal, but then a few hours later, what happens? 
we're hungry again. We need to find another source of food to fill that hunger. But it's not just with food, I don't think. We're thinking about the yearnings of the human heart and the longings of the human heart and needing needing fulfilment. So I don't think, actually, it's just food. We live in a society where people experiment in countless ways to try and find fulfilment, whether that's materially, physically, or spiritually, just to try and meet the longings of the human heart. But the reality is that wherever people look for this fulfilment, wherever people look for this satisfaction, wherever they look to have these needs met, none of them can truly satisfy the heart, and none of them will last. So just like food provides satisfaction for, for a while, actually some of the things we give ourselves to will provide a sense of fulfilment for a while, absolutely. But it doesn't last. Jesus promises that whoever comes to him will never hunger. And whoever believes in him will never thirst. There's no need for for further satisfaction. Because in Christ we are truly satisfied once and for all. Never again to thirst. Never again to hunger. In terms of those yearnings of our heart, in him we find total fulfilment. Now, when, when the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness, you know, they, they made reference to it with the manna that was provided with their ancestors. When they were wandering around in the wilderness, God provided for them in a wonderful way. There's no way that could be described as anything other than a miracle. But it ultimately, it didn't relieve them from death. At some point, whether weeks, months or years down the line, all of those ancestors still died. But Jesus, as the true bread of God, he gives everlasting life to those who believe him. Yes, these bodies we have now will fail, but we will continue on in everlasting life for those who believe in Christ. See, for Jesus, sorry, for those who believe in Jesus, there is absolute security. It's just these wonderful, wonderful verses that, that Steph read out to us where it just speaks of this, this relationship between the Father and Jesus where it says that the Father is going to draw people to Jesus. The Father himself is going to gather people to, to give them to his Son like giving his Son a gift. And Jesus makes this promise. He says, those that the Father gathers to me, those that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. It's not a statement that when they come to me, they're not going to be allowed in. It's like once they're in, they're mine forever. There's nothing that's going to happen that means they're going to be sent away. There is absolute security in Jesus for eternity because it is the will of the Father. It's what is good and pleasing to the Father and he wants us to be able to share in that. And to be able to share in that relationship with Jesus with absolute security. We don't need to be afraid of being cast out or let go because that will never, ever happen. You see, true satisfaction, fulfillment and life are only found in Jesus. And this is what Jesus is making through these statements. Now, towards the end of Jesus' teaching, you can see there's a shift in language uh, where he goes from talking about bread and food to talking about flesh and blood. It's a bit of an extreme jump that he seems to make. And for those that were there, it clearly doesn't sit well with those that were listening. And you can kind of imagine if you were there, you might understand a little little bit of their scepticism, really, and a little bit of their, you know, not being too sure about what Jesus is saying. You can get your head around talking about bread and talking about food, but when someone then starts talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, it can get... 
you know, you can understand why it, why it didn't sit too well. But what we have to understand is that, again, Jesus is teaching a, sp- uh, a spiritual truth by referring to physical objects. But th- in this case, he's been misunderstood. And the shift in language that he uses is a shift to using sacrificial language. It's the language that would have been used talking about sacrifice. And clearly, his crucifixion, the sacrifice of the cross, is in his mind at this point. Bearing in mind, this is yet to happen. The people he's talking to, they're not aware of this. Even his disciples aren't yet entirely sure how Jesus is, is going to fulfill everything that he said he's going to do. But Jesus, he knows what is ahead of him. He knows that he's going to be put to death. He knows he's going to be sacrificed. He knows he's going to be crucified. And so he's bringing in this language. So there's this relationship between finding absolute fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ, but it goes hand in hand with the fact that a sacrifice is going to have to be made. And while it may have caused confusion among those who were with Jesus and those who were listening to what he was saying, faith in Jesus cannot be divorced from his death and resurrection. Even before it had happened, he's bringing it in. He's using this language of sacrifice. There's another commentary I read when I was preparing by a guy named Tasker. He says that it was not possible for Jesus to make this heavenly food, which in fact was himself, universally available until he had offered himself in sacrifice. The bread had to be broken before it could become the food of all who would receive it. And his blood had to be shed before the ransomed could receive its life-given properties. In a word, the distribution of this food could only result from his redeeming death. (coughs) There is therefore a vital connection between the giving by Jesus of the real bread, which far surpasses in quality, and in the permanence of its effects, the manner which came before it, (coughs) and the offering of his own flesh and blood in sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says that in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of all time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth through his sacrifice through his body that was broken through his blood that was spilt there is forgiveness of sins there is reconciliation with God there is being united together in Christ see this is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about being the bread of life but how in order to receive what he's got for us, we have to be those that will share in his sacrifice, those that will put our, our trust and our faith in his sacrifice. And that's why that shift in language came in. Now, when you were, were hearing, when Steph was reading that passage, did anything come to mind when Jesus starts speaking of eating flesh and drinking blood? Was there anything familiar that might have come into your mind that we would do together as a church? when we take communion which we're going to do later on and although the communion breaking of bread and the drinking of wine hadn't yet been established that will come later on at the last supper what we're going to be doing later when we come and we take communion together in and of itself 
uh, isn't where salvation is found. It's not actually by the physical taking of it where salvation is found, but it's a representation of having received eternal life uh, through being united with Jesus through his death and his resurrection. It's a really wonderful and beautiful thing that we come to do to remind ourselves, but it's this, this representation of what it means to be united in him, recognizing what it meant for him, for that sacrifice to have been made in all, on our behalf in order for us to have redemption through his blood, for our sins to have been forgiven, in order that the yearnings of our heart, the longings of our heart, the desires of our heart can be totally and utterly satisfied and fulfilled in him. Never to be hungry again. Never to have to have that satisfaction, that satisfaction met again because it's been utterly and totally fulfilled in Christ. This is such a rich picture that Jesus is painting of himself through what seems like quite a simple object as bread. And he's just opened up this whole wonderful, beautiful invitation. May we have the band up? Uh, we're going to come back into a time of worship in just a moment. As I say, uh, Paul's going to lead us in, in the communion a bit later on through the service. But here, I just want to share another observation I made. And actually it came from reading on for a, a few verses further on. And that is the claims that Jesus makes, they demand a response. When Jesus makes these statements about himself, people aren't kind of, it appears to me that people aren't left impartial. Uh, kind of in the middle, not sure what to do with it. And it seems like it elicits a really strong response in one direction or the other. Let me explain what I mean. And actually, before I do that, to ask this question. So if the claims that Jesus makes demands a response, the question, question is, is what are we going to do with what we've heard this morning? I don't think we can just be impartial about it. You see, after Jesus said these things, after the crowd had been gathered to him, after he taught these things in the synagogue, Many of his disciples, that is many of his followers, many of the people who would have wanted to be around him and associate themselves with him, they turned their back on him at this point and they left him. They decided they weren't going to follow him anymore. They didn't want anything else to do with him because the things that he said were hard, because the things that he said were offensive. It may well have been that it was the fact that he started talking about flesh and blood. It might have, in a way, kind of weirded some people out to the fact that they're like, I'm not too sure I want to be around this guy anymore. And it says many of the disciples turned their back and left him and didn't follow him from that point on. His statement demanded a response. So we had that group that left. But then when Jesus, he turns to his 12, all of them, they stuck around. He asks them too, he says, are you two going to leave? Just like this other group have left, are you two going to do that? And Simon Peter, he kind of stands up as the representative for the rest of the twelve. And he answers them. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They didn't understand fully, I don't think, when Jesus was talking about flesh and blood and sacrifice. This hadn't yet happened. I don't think they would have fully comprehended what he was talking about. But they recognised who he was. And they trusted in him, even though there were things that were maybe a bit uncertain in their minds. Things that would have needed a bit of clarifying as time went on. They said, actually, there's nowhere else I want to go. Where else can we go? Because it's only in you is eternal life, fa is eternal life found. 
It's only in you. You are the Holy One of God. They recognised him about that already. And they continue to follow him and give themselves to him. So just to leave you with that question, what are we going to do with what we've heard this morning? Do we think like the one group? Actually, what you're saying is too hard. I don't really want anything to do with that anymore. Or do we say like Simon Peter answered, actually, Lord, where else can we go? It's only in you are the words of eternal life. It's only in you is true satisfaction and fulfilment found through belief in you. Shall we stand? We're going come to come again to worship. I just want to pray for us as we do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for, for the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that they were written in order that we would believe in you in order that we would put our faith and trust in you, that we would recognise you as the Son of God, and that in you we would find eternal life. Lord, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you, actually, for the situation and context we're in, that we have it freely available to us. Lord, that we can benefit from it, that we can study it, that we can explore it together. And Lord, we thank you that in your word you make these wonderful declarations of who you are these statements of your divinity, of the truth that you are God, of your nature and your character, of your love for us, of the purpose that you came with. We thank you, Jesus, that you are God come close. Not far off or distant, you are, you are close. You left heaven to be with, with people. That's absolutely wonderful. And Father, we thank you that you are the bread of life. We thank you that in you, total fulfillment, total satisfaction is found. We thank you that every yearning, every longing of our heart is totally fulfilled and satisfied in you. Not just for a moment, not just for a few hours or days or weeks, but for eternity. And Lord, we thank you that for those of us, Lord, those that your Father has gathered to you, you will never cast us out. There is absolute security in you. I don't know of anywhere else where I can feel as secure and as confident as in my relationship with you. And Lord, it's in that relationship that we put our trust. It's in our, that relationship that we put our hope. And Lord, we come now to worship you. Holy Spirit, would you help us to worship, to be able to, to just pour out our hearts. Lord, we, we pray that you would just help us to use the giftings that you've given us. Lord, draw us ever deeper, not just into an understanding of who you are, but ever deeper into our relationship with you. We long to experience you this morning. And we thank you once again for everything you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.